Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 71, Enter the Leopard. Hands up, anyone who can remember the provisions of Oxford. Well, it was in fact a couple of months ago that we spoke about these things, so I thought I'd give you a lightning-fast recap of the main essentials. So, weak and feeble king, Henry III, droopy eye, scary wife. Lots of relations from France, Lusignan, Savoyard getting the best jobs. Really rubbish decisions. No one has any confidence in the king, his justice, and he wastes lots of money trying to get Sicily for his second son. So, as a result, the Lusignan run out of town by a pile of barons, the king reduced to a cipher, ruled by a council of barons, set up by the provisions of Oxford. And although it took us weeks to do that, that's pretty much the guts of it. So, this week I will surely be cracking on, rather than meandering around as we've been doing. But no, gentle listeners, sadly not. No, before we follow the journey towards the death squads on the fields of Evesham, I thought we should look at one of the main protagonists for the next 50 years. Ta-da! Ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba! Drumroll, sound of trumpets, enter Edward, stage left, holding his hands, clasped over his head to acknowledge the applause of the crowd. Edward I, Edward Longshanks, will play a significant part in this whole crisis, before, of course, going on to be a rather more effective king than his dad was. And so, I thought I should introduce the second great coin giveaway. Many moons ago, when, in the words of Douglas Adams, men were men, women were women, and small, furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were small, furry creatures from Alpha Centauri, a very generous supporter called Rob donated a fully original Edward I long cross silver penny as a follow-up to the last great coin giveaway that he did for me. I've kept the silver penny by my side in my small, dark office 
making strange sounds in the back of my throat, calling it precious. But now Edward, the leopard, has arrived, and it's time for the precious to move on. The outcome of all that rather mindless blather is that if you go on to the History of England website at www.thehistoryofengland.com, there will be a new post where you can enter the Great Silver Penny Giveaway. Your job is to post a comment. Ask some questions. Suggest the topic of an episode you'd like. Make a suggestion about how to improve the website or podcast. Suggest a good audiobook. Give a link to an original or medieval text or website. Anything, really. I'll keep the page up until the 29th September and then make a random selection from everyone who's commented. And once again, Robin William, thanks a million for donating the coin. It's really kind of you, and I've loved having it in my possession and thinking of all those hands that it must have passed through over the centuries. But anyway, in 1239, Edward Longshanks no doubt had shanks as scrawny as any squalling newborn baby. We know very little about his education and upbringing, except, of course, that to his mother and her Savoyard, those shanks were mighty important. Yes, a mother's love and all that sort of thing, but also controlling those shanks were a key to power and influence. After all, he's going to be the future king. We've already mentioned that Henry III had given Gascony as an appanage to his son Edward, and a very troublesome appanage it promised to be. In 1252, the Gascon lords had all been invited over to England, and they'd been presented to the 13-year-old as their lord. They would have knelt before him and swore their loyalty while Henry spread the love with precious gifts. Clearly, one hand had been held behind the Gascon backs with fingers crossed, since the value and nature of that loyalty was demonstrated the following year, when the Gascon loyally hooked up with Alfonso of Castile and loyally tried to kick Edward out. There's a nice little vignette about Edward, who at the age of 14 was already showing some of the spirit that would earn him the Hammer of the Scots title. He desperately wanted to go with Dad on his campaign to take part in a glorious war against the perfidious Gascons. His head had already been filled with thoughts of the crusade after his father took the cross some years earlier, and he was looking for a bit of glory. But sadly, Dad made him stay with Mum and look after the house while he was gone. Matthew Paris paints a picture of Edward as they waved Henry off from the shore. The boy stood crying and sobbing on the shore, and would not depart as long as he could see the swelling sails of the ship. Poor Edward. He wanted to get stuck in. But of course the war had consequences, and one of them was Edward's marriage to 13-year-old Eleanor of Castile as part of the peace plan. Another was that her dad Alfonso insisted that his girl should be well looked after, and that she should be married to a rich young man, not just a young man with good prospects. So, he insisted that Edward be given lands worth 10,000 quid a year. And that's one of the reasons why Edward was given his vast personal appanage. As we've said, this included Gascony, but it also included pretty much all the royal lands in Ireland and Wales, the city of Bristol, and crucially the earldom of Chester, where the line of Hughes and Ranulfs that we've had since William the Conqueror had finally run out. It wasn't a bad move for Henry, actually. He put a young, ambitious lad in control of a bunch of rather troublesome lands that could do with a bit of sorting out and with a bit of energy. As Edward got older, he began to have more control over his lands, but under the careful and watchful eyes of his father, but particularly his mother and her main man, Peter of Savoy. 
and so we get a bit of adolescent boundary-pushing medieval style. In 1255, Edward tried to destroy the church at La Réole in Gascony, where some rebels had been holed up, and Henry had been forced to step in. Son, you can't go around levelling the house of God for no good reason. You have to play nice. The same year, a row blew up between them about customs dues in Gascony. Hardly the stuff of high stories of daring do, but enough for Henry to dramatically raise his hands to the sky and draw a parallel with Henry II and all his family troubles. But then Henry could be something of a drama queen. But the point is, we're talking teenager here, and a teenager with a fair degree of power and riches, mixed with a degree of unwanted control. Edward now rode, accompanied by 200 knights, and that's a massive amount, even for a king of England. He's a famously big lad. As a fully grown man, he was described as broad-chested, blonde-haired and handsome. Which, of course, is faintly irritating, though happily for us normal mortals, he did also inherit his father's drooping eyelid. But, of course, the Longshanks were becoming into operation about this time. According to the chroniclers, he towered head and shoulders above the average. And as it happens, his body was exhumed in the 18th century, and it turns out that we can confirm that he was six foot two inches. Now this is impressive enough these days, even today you'd be unlikely to question the parentage of such a lad during the Friday night pub crawl. In the days medieval, it was even more impressive. The average medieval man is a shade over 5 foot 7 or 172 centimetres, compared to 5 foot 9 or 177 centimetres in the UK these days. And the medieval woman is 5 foot 2 or 158 centimetres, compared to today's 5 foot 4 or 164 centimetres. This same increase in size is reflected in shoe sizes. Medieval man's average English shoe size was between 4 and 6, and women's between 1 and 3, against the average male shoe size these days of about 9. That's quite a difference. All of this would serve to make Edward look that little bit more impressive. Though incidentally, it probably made less difference amongst his own group, because there is a distinct difference between the heights of the nobility and the peasantry given that the nobility were getting all the best food, and so the long and the short, if you'll pardon the pun, is that Edward's mates will be pretty much the same as modern men. Incidentally, one further fab fact before we move on. You might think that we're in a particularly scrawny period of time, but in fact people were taller in days medieval than they would be in later centuries. So in fact the English were at their shortest, as far as we know, in the 18th century. I just thought that was interesting. Edward is not only tall, he's also clearly pretty active in the traditional idiom of the medieval knight. We know, for example, that he takes part in tournaments, and we get the first mention of Edward at the tournament in Bly in Nottinghamshire in 1256. Tournaments are an increasingly common part of the English chivalric scene, but we're still in the world of bloody melees rather than courtly jousts, as covered in the William the Marshal episodes. And it's clear that Henry III was no keener than Henry II had been on the concept, Henry III insisted they be licensed, and he cancelled a number of them. They had the potential to become not just a mock battle, but also a chance for his knights to play out the conflict between natives and foreigners. But either way, Edward clearly liked them. Six foot two or not, there's some evidence that he wasn't particularly good at them. In 1260 and 1261, he'll be in France at tournaments, and on both occasions, he'll end up being badly beaten and losing everything he has. So not necessarily the picture traditionally painted, but as has been pointed out to me by Dean, 
it had been only 21 or 22 at the time, and so maybe we can put it down to inexperience. I'm going to leave the historiography and all that sort of stuff to a later episode when we start with Edward's reign. But we should say something about his character at the time, and I should also declare my hand. On the second point first, a basic historical principle, of course, is that you need to know the bias of your sources. And your source, in this case, is not disposed to like Edward very much. It's a long time since I studied him, so I'll keep an open mind. But, despite this Longshanks, model of chivalry, conqueror, medieval Justinian reputation thing, my views are a bit coloured by the fact that his reputation seems at least substantially built on the fact that he managed to conquer a country one-tenth of the size of his own and spend a vast fortune in the process. And there's the Hammer of the Scots thing, which in essence is that he managed to completely mess up a previously excellent relationship with Scotland for all time with no long-term gain. As I say, I'll try and stay open-minded, but just so you know, I don't start from a very good place. So that was one of the two points. The other is that in his early days, he didn't have the reputation he was to have in his later years. There's a rather fascinating piece of contemporary political writing called The Song of Lewis. It will be on my website. In it, the author has something of a go at describing young Edward, with a bit of good, but also a bit of bad. So I'm going to read it out. At the time, by the way, pard is the medieval word for cat. So here we go. Whereunto shall the noble Edward be compared? Perhaps he will be rightly called a leopard. If we divide the name, it becomes lion and pard. Lion, because we saw that he was not slow to attack the strongest places, fearing the onslaught of none, with the boldest valour making a raid amidst the castles, and wherever he goes, succeeding as if it were at his wish, as though, like Alexander, he could speedily subdue the whole world, if fortune's moving wheel would stand still forever. A lion by pride and fierceness, he is by inconstancy and changeableness a pard changing his word and promise, cloaking himself by pleasant speech. When he is in a strait, he promises you whatever you wish. But as soon as he has escaped, he renounces his promise. Let Gloucester be witness where, when free from his difficulty, he at once revoked what he had sworn. The treachery or falsehood whereby he is advanced he calls prudence. The way whereby he arrives, whether he will, crooked though it be, is regarded as straight. Wrong gives him pleasure and is called right. Whatever he likes, he says is lawful, and he thinks that he is released from the law as though he were greater than the king. Now I think the writer here has something of a genuine handle on the man's character, but it will unfold as we go along. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anyway, so let's put this together. So here we've got the big, active lad with lots of money and power chafing under the control of his mother, father and great-uncle, Peter of Savoy, and surrounded by 200 young men. So, what did we think was going to happen? Well, I don't suppose it's ever inevitable, but there's more than a whiff of hormonally-driven irresponsible violence. Quite apart from a very likely rash of grunting over the breakfast pie, there's a specific story about Edward and his lads out one day meeting another man and Edward ordering his friends to beat him up. There are notes in the administrative records, in fact, of specific money that has to be paid to repair the damage Edward and his household cause. Meanwhile, further arguments between the son and king appear about the government of Bordeaux in Gascony. The potential for a rebellious royal prince is in the air like an elephant in the room, which is clearly a poor set of metaphors to mix, but hopefully you know what I mean. One of the stories of the revolution of 1258-1265 is all about the shifting sands of allegiances. While the whole affair has traditionally been presented as good, high-minded, idealistic barons out to make the world a better place versus the evil, reactionary and oppressive King's Party, the reality was that there were a number of different parties and individuals constantly moving alignments between them as their objectives and attitudes changed. We will come back to all of these, but the point I wanted to make is that Edward is just one of these parties. He's not simply part of the Royalist Party, oh dearie me no. At this time, early on, he's gathering his own affinity and loyalties. One of his constant companions is Henry of Almaine, his cousin, the son of Richard of Cornwall. Others are lords from the Marches of Wales. Prince Edward is a major player in the Marches now. He has the Earldom of Chester and other royal lands there. During the war with Llewellyn in 1257-8, he's thrown into their paths and company. It meant he was well acquainted with the major players such as Roger Mortimer and the de Clares, and this will be very important later on. But, as a young man, Edward is busy bringing other lesser lords into his immediate circle. Some of these were also Welsh marcher lords. One example is Roger Clifford, a member of the famous marcher family who joined his inner circle around this time. One of Roger Clifford's ancestors had famously made a royal messenger eat the royal writ he was carrying to make the point that in the marches, the king's writ didn't run. There were many others in Edward's affinity at this stage. I'm often told how hard it is to keep up with all the names, so I'll mention but one, a close confidant called Roger de Leybourne. He's worth a mention, because just like William the Marshal, it was the tournament that was the making of him, though in a rather less honourable manner. Because in 1252... Roger killed a man called Arnolf in a tournament. Nothing wrong with that, you might say. Good on the lad. But the point was that he'd done it in a joust. I'm sure you already know that the lances the knights used in jousts were blunted. Obviously, they could still put your eye out. And the whole thing would give you health and safety officer sleepless knights. But the blunted lance gave you a fighting chance of coming out alive. But Roger and Arnolf had form. Arnolf had given Roger a beating at a previous tournament and old Roger was out for revenge. And in 1252 he got it. In spades. 
but he did it by sneakily using a sharpened lance rather than a blunted one. In penance for what was in fact basically murder, he took the cross. Henry ended up pardoning him, and from 1257 he was in Edward's retinue, as having demonstrated the kind of virtues that Edward wanted around him. The medieval world could be a rough place. The fact that Edward was building an affinity, however outsized, was all pretty normal and unworrying, though the connection with the March of Lords will be significant later, as I say. But what really put the wind up Queen Eleanor and Peter of Savoy was the increasing closeness between Edward and his half-uncles, the dreaded Lusignan. Like any slightly self-important medieval prince, Edward wanted more money to build his retinue and thought that his dad was mean and tight-fisted. Enter the Lusignan sliding into a whisper in the young leopard's ears, only too pleased to lend him the money he needed and tut over his father's failure to provide it. The Lusignan could well look pretty good from Edward's perspective, powerful, well-connected, bold and more than a bit lawless. They look pretty cool against the background of his much more serious Peter of Savoy and the cloying, restrictive and ever so slightly desperate attentions of his mother. So when the Seven Earls marched into Westminster Hall that day in the events that led up to the provisions of Oxford, Edward would have been there by his father's side and would have seen his supporters being threatened. We know that he swore his oath very unwillingly and his opposition to the reformers would not have helped move things forward. Nor did Edward hide his support for the Lusignan. As the baronial council started to try and do its work, it did nicely provocative things like hmm, putting Geoffrey de Lusignan in charge of the complete duchy of Gascony. But as we know, Edward seemed to have backed the wrong horse and the Lusignan were banished. So all of that brings us back to date and where we left off last time, with the Lusignan banished and the provisions of Oxford established, with all the real political decisions being taken by the Council of Fifteen. It's a funny thing. I've seen the provisions described by historians as anything from a surprisingly moderate document to the nearest England came to a republic for the next 400 years. For my part, I tend to the latter. I think it depends where you start from. So I suppose that if you start from the point of view that in 1258 the reformers were pretty much completely dominant and could have basically demanded what they liked, then from that viewpoint the programme could be seen as moderate. For example, at no point did they suggest getting rid of Henry himself. For my part, I tend towards the more dramatic view, though obviously without wanting to be a sensationalist. But look, if we think about everything we've heard together from the last 750 years since the arrival of Churdish, have we heard anything like this? Magna Carta may have had a council, but it was much more limited in scope, basically there to oversee the implementation of the Charter itself, and it soon disappeared. There's been the odd Charter of Liberties and Coronation Oath along the way, but absolutely nothing like this, where the king is subjugated to a council of barons. In real terms, the provisions of Oxford constituted the emasculation of the king's powers. The work, responsibility and levers of power were with the council. It was just that they did what they did in the king's name. I suspect Henry would have agreed with me. There's a famous story in July 1258, just after the famous Oxford Parliament, about how Henry was caught in a thunderstorm on the Thames and he put ashore at the Bishop of Durham's palace, where de Montfort happened to be staying. The Earl greeted the King cheerfully and courteously and asked Henry what he was afraid of since the thunder had passed. Henry replied, I fear thunder and lightning beyond measure, but by God's head I fear you more than all the thunder and lightning in the world. One further thing I forgot to mention about the provisions 
is that they're the first official document to be issued in the despised and reviled English language since the conquest. In addition, straight after they were issued, the king was forced to issue a confirmation of the agreement, and this was also issued in English, as well as Latin and French. This reflects the nature of the revolution. Because firstly, it's involved and relied on the support of a much wider cross-section of society. There is a stronger whiff of social radicalism than we've ever had before, which says that it's pushing the line that it is not just about how the king treats his magnates, it's also about the rights of the common man, even gasp, down to the level of the peasant. The provisions of Oxford were reforming the realm for the benefit of the full commonwealth of the realm, even the oiks. So it should be written in the language of the oik as well. It also reflects that this is at least partly about the struggle between these aliens and true-born Englishmen, though with Savoyards and de Montfort around this is slightly confused. But anyway, writing it in English seems pretty appropriate if you've got a problem with French aliens. So the baronial council was now running England, and they had three main things to deal with. First of all, it needed to get the papacy on side. Then it had to move on the peace discussions with France, and it needed above all to implement the reform programme. The papacy thing would be best dealt with, they thought, by having a papal legate appointed who'd come to England and get things agreed. Pope Alexander, however, had a different outlook on life. He was happy enough to cancel the whole Sicily thing. After all, he was clearly getting nowhere with Henry, so he might as well try someone else a bit more effective. Which, in this case, turned out to be Charles, Louis IX's brother, who would have succeeded where Henry failed by 1266. But for the rest of it, no go. The Pope was a man of his time. Kings were meant to be kings, and the rest were meant to do what they were told. He refused to appoint a papal legate in the fear that it would somehow make it look as though he approved of what was going on. So, barons, speak to the hand, because the face ain't listening. The barons had a lot more success implementing their reform programme. The first step was to get everyone to see that Henry was right behind the idea, and everything was being carried out in his name with a big happy smile because as Cromwell was to find out 400 years later, no one really had any idea of an alternative to having a king driving the bus. So a couple of proclamations were sent out in August and October to the localities, telling everyone they should do what the Council of Fifteen told them to do. The big idea was basically that from now on, there would be powerful state servants, justicia, treasurer, chancellor, who would stop the king from doing anything stupid or tyrannical. This has been set up in the provisions, so tick. Job done. Next, they'd said that they would appoint good men as sheriffs, rather than rubbish ones, and they'd have to do the job for a salary and for no more than a year each time. That was also within the council's gift, so tick, job done. But the big one was really the retrospective thing, getting the four knights in each county to review everything that had gone on and raise a load of complaints. They'd use all this information to not only put things right, but to establish legislation that would keep things working right as well. So Hugh Biggard, the new justicia, duly set off on his airs, or his travels, but it became quickly clear that it was going to take him some time to get round everywhere. So he kept going, but decided that complaints were to be sent to Parliament directly as well, rather than having to wait until he came round. The crucial thing about this whole process was that the complaints were to look at not just what the king was doing wrong, but also at what the magnates and lords were doing wrong. If you did look at or download the provisions of Oxford from the History of England website, it's there in the first paragraph. So, quote, 
to hear all complaints touching any wrongs or injuries inflicted by people by sheriffs, bailiffs or any other men. We saw in Magna Carta how John tried to get the barons wriggling on this hook. OK, so you're telling me I have to be a good boy? Well, that means you have to be good boys as well. But this time, this movement genuinely comes from the barons themselves, or from some of them anyway. And while my general impression is that historians are deeply, deeply suspicious of any political movement that looks like altruism, and therefore look to find some other dirtier, more practical cause, in this case, most historians seem to accept that idealism plays a major role here. And we can see the hand of de Montfort, at least, in part of this. It's pretty clear that his close links with Robert Grosteste had influenced him. And Grosteste had been insistent in his writings and his work on the need to show justice to inferiors. At some point, and probably not for a while, Edward himself was affected and convinced by the argument, and made some effort at least to see that the principles were implemented in his own lands. We know this because we've got a private letter from himself to his chief official in Chester. This is what he said. If common justice is denied to any one of our subjects by us or our bailiffs, we lose the favour of God and man, and our lordship is belittled. Now it has to be said that Edward's political strategy changes during 1258 and 1259. He began to realise that he has a chance to gain influence, independent from mum and dad with the reformers who are in power. But to do so, he has to prove his reforming credentials. But this letter is a private one. You can bet that if he didn't believe this stuff, He'd have spoken fair words publicly and then privately ordered a new set of thumbscrews for anybody who actually did it. So it looks genuine, and one point in favour of the leopard. However, while Edward and others were getting more and more convinced of the genuine need for reform, the whole baronial angle was making others nervous. Keep an eye on Richard de Clare and his 15-year-old son Gilbert, also to become known as the Red de Clare. They're showing signs of nervousness. They're standing around in corners, muttering, looking at their toes when anyone talks about reforming baronial practice. Richard de Clare had pretty much achieved his objectives by now. He'd got rid of the Lusignan, and deep down, he wanted to go on oppressing his tenants in time-honoured aristocratic fashion. To pick up a theme of the Pythons, he had no time for anarcho-syndicalist collectives, and he was a big fan of the violence inherent in the system. But a clear impact of the programme of investigations in 1258 and 9 was an increasing radicalism and the spreading of reform to a far wider social group than had ever happened before. And in this lay a great strength of the movement, a direct connection to the knights who, as we've seen, are increasingly central to the running of the country. Having challenged the power of the king, the reformers needed to appeal to another power and over and over we hear the phrase community of the realm. Here are the beneficiaries of the reform, but also maybe here is the body that justifies the actions of the reformers the legitimate source of their authority. But in this great idea also lay the great weakness of the movement, because as we've seen, many of the barons had other motives from all of this. Their objective had been to get rid of the Lusignan and curb the power of the king. They'd used the reform programme as a bit of a cover. Now that they were involved, it was difficult to break ranks. But unfortunately, these guys include all the most powerful. The Mortimers of the Marches, the Declares, Peter de Savoy, and even bigot. They'd go along with it for the moment, but every time some issue about how the magnates ran their own business was raised, it rubbed against an open sore. The third objective was to get that peace with France signed, but I think we'll come back to that next week. 
So don't forget the great Edward I Silver Penny giveaway. Thanks very much for listening, for all your comments and so on. Good luck and have a great week.